Hey, What the Health listeners, this is Julie Rovner. If you like our show, then you should check out Sick, a podcast from WFYI and PRX. This season, the team at Sick is investigating prisons. Incarcerated people are entitled to health care under the Constitution, but a lot can go wrong in a place that's supposed to keep people healthy, yet designed to punish them. What happens inside a prison affects all of us. Visit sickpodcast.org and listen to Sick wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're taping this week on Thursday, December 16th at 10.30 a.m. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today, we are joined via video conference by Margot sanger Cat to the New York Times. Good morning. Alice Olstein of Politico. Hello. And Mary Ellen McIntyre of CQ Roll Call. Hi, everyone. So there is, I know I say this every week, but this week there really is a ton of news. We will get right to it. Uh, we're going to start with COVID this week. I called this segment in the rundown, O-O-Omicron. Please feel free to groan. That's Joanne's not here. Uh, but while the Omicron variant is starting to grow rapidly, it's still Delta that's doing the most damage. This week, we marked the almost incomprehensible milestone of 800,000 Americans dead of COVID. More of those deaths actually took place this year in 2021 than in 2020. Why do people keep acting like the pandemic is over when clearly it is not? I think it's really doing a number on folks to wrap our brains around the fact that we're entering year three. And I think that the winter surge that's already sort of underway with the new variant, it's just sort of leading folks into a place of, is this ever going to end? Is this just going to be our lives for the foreseeable future? Hard lockdown policies and restrictions aren't sustainable forever. And they've sort of lost the, the oh, let's just pull together for this short term and we can beat it mentality because we have not shown our ability to do that. I, I found that, you know, here where I live, just outside of Washington, D.C., they put the mask mandate. The mask mandate was off for, I don't know, about a month and a half. And now it's back on. But most of the areas around us, there isn't one. And I find that people are, you know, they're just they're tired of wearing masks. They're tired of being careful. And yet at the same time, I'm seeing more and more people sort of around me who are getting sick with COVID. I think the numbers are kind of impossible to wrap your head around. Like 800,000 is so, so much more than, you know, the initial projections that we were talking about almost two years ago when this kind of started and became the reality. And just the fact that we've been dealing with it. I think also there's starting to be more of a sense of almost resignment to the fact that at some point people are going to get it, at least in my social circle. I feel like in the past few weeks, that's something that people have really sort of been like, well, at some point, everyone's going to get it. So I want to be safe. You know, if I'm going to travel to see family for the holidays or I have, you know, a big event this weekend, I'm going to be safe and take precautions ahead of time. But sort of the idea that, you know, I'm going to stop living my life broad scale and, you know, stop going out to restaurants or going to the gym or whatever is just not the mentality that people have anymore at this point. 
are going to holiday parties. Yeah. People, uh, we're at this sort of place where like, okay, yeah, we know we should probably be hunkering down more because we know that Omicron can probably evade even people who are double vaccinated and boosted. And yet I don't see a lot of behavior change. Speaking of people acting like the pandemic is over, The Atlantic this week published a piece that's getting a lot of pushback. It's called Where I Live, No One Cares About COVID. And it makes the case that COVID is really just something the media elites and people on the coasts are paying attention to. First of all, even though there's a lot in there that's really questionable, honestly, uh, there's lots of evidence that pregnant people should not drink alcohol. <laughs> the piece suggests that that's something that just overcautious doctors recommend. Um, I think the broader point of the piece is kind of spot on. Most of America, for better or worse, has moved past the pandemic. Um, anybody here think the Atlantic shouldn't have actually published this piece? I saw a lot of reaction saying, why did they even do this? <laughs> I mean, I don't think that anyone should be prevented from publishing these articles, but I feel like the article like at the headline level is in fact describing something that is true, which is that, you know, for a long time, large swaths of this country have just not been taking a lot of precautions against COVID and have been sort of frustrated by the restrictions because of convenience reasons, because of culture war reasons, whatever. And I think it is valuable to have that perspective uh, for the Atlantic audience that does tend to be, you know, more of these kind of coastal, highly educated people who are engaging in more protective behaviors. But that said, I think 1,300 people are still dying every day from COVID. You know, we talked about 800,000, which is a total. And it's in some ways that number is so big, it's like hard to think about. But 1,300 people every single day. And deaths are up, I think, like 40% over the last two weeks. So I think that the piece is wrong in the sense that COVID is not still touching the lives of lots of Americans and lots of American communities. I think both things can be true. It can be true that people in your community are going about their lives as if the pandemic doesn't exist, and also that they know lots of people who are getting sick. They have relatives who have died, and it is a weird kind of dual reality. And I, I just think the tone of the piece felt wrong to me because I think it was describing something that was true, but being kind of flippant about the consequences of it. I just think it's a great example of... You know, it's easy to point fingers at other people's bubbles and blind spots, and it's harder to see your own. And people in the media and big high-income cities are in a bubble and are influenced by, you know, their communities and the things they hear. But also this person writing about his community, like Margot said, people in his community are dying of COVID. Their loved ones absolutely are thinking about this and are touched by this. You know, people in his community are getting long COVID and are struggling for months and unable to work. You know, we know from the data that that has to be true. And yet, you know, he doesn't seem to acknowledge or have any interaction with any of those people. And so he's, you know, in his own bubble, as we all are. So I definitely agree that there was a lack of acknowledgement of that in there. Yeah, I should point out that, that the writer is from southwestern Michigan, and Michigan is a state that is currently in the throes of a very large and severe wave that has the hospitals pretty much all over the state full. So meanwhile, if confusion is a problem, here is another case study. The Supreme Court this week upheld New York's vaccine mandate for health workers, yet it seems that many hospitals are dropping their mandates because they can't hire enough workers and they're worried even about losing the few who refuse to be vaccinated. Is this a mandate thing or is this just about how terrible it is to work in a hospital right now? These hospitals are so completely overrun with COVID patients and yet we have people outside behaving like it's all over. I think that maybe it's a little bit of both. The vaccine mandates, several different ones are pretty controversial, but 
you know, we have talked a lot over the last couple of years about physician burnout and hospitals having a hard time hiring people and having enough staff to deal with, you know, not just COVID, but all of the delayed healthcare that people have been needing and regular healthcare and procedures that patients need done. So it sort of seems like maybe a combination of the two of just sort of, yes, this is a problem, but it's just sort of an added problem on top of another issue. And hospitals might feel like, hey, we want to have this mandate, but we need people to take care of our patients more. I think that seems to be where this seems to be going. All right. Well, speaking of the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court last week in a rare Friday decision signaled even more strongly that the conservative majority seems likely to overrule Roe v. Wade in 2022 and roll back abortion rights. The only question remaining is to what extent. In this case, involving a very creatively written Texas law, the court ruled that abortion providers in the state can sue some state officials, but not many. It also ruled that the U.S. Justice Department could not sue to start Stop the law. And most important, it left the Texas law in place for now, meaning that abortion after six weeks of pregnancy is unavailable in the nation's second largest state and has been since September 1st, even though technically the right to abortion remains on the books. Alice, this was painted by some as kind of a split decision, but it really wasn't, was it? Yeah, this was an example of why it's best to read an opinion slowly and carefully before popping a take on Twitter, because even the plaintiffs in this case, even, you know, whole women's health, the abortion clinic in Texas, at first described it as a narrow win. And then as folks analyzed it more, and it really sunk in how bad this was for the abortion rights side, that really became clear. And like you said, you know, basically the most important point is they are leaving the law in place for now. And even John Roberts, who's no fan of abortion and no progressive, described this as an endorsement of Texas's attempt to make an end run around constitutional precedent and shield its law from from scrutiny by the courts. So the case is allowed to move forward in some form. The court sort of cut off what the clinics saw as their most effective means of getting this law blocked in the lower courts. But cases are continuing to play out in both federal and state court. And of course, hanging over all of this is what the Supreme Court is going to do on the bigger question of abortion rights. But also, while this particular case was about abortion, it's pretty clear that what the law has done here is let a state deny its citizens a constitutional right by outsourcing enforcement to those who oppose that right. This could stretch way beyond abortion, right? We're already starting to see it in some other states with guns. So California basically did what (laughs) justices on the Supreme Court warned could happen, which is to apply this same enforcement scheme to other topics besides abortion, saying, okay, well, if you're going to do this for abortion, we're going to empower regular citizens to sue one another over Uh, gun rights. I think that it is more to prove a point. I don't think this will end up actually functioning in practice. There is nothing preventing courts from being hypocritical and applying this standard to some and not others. But I think it's a way that California is attempting to shine a light on the possible implications of of the Supreme Court's actions on abortion. And, and Marga, you had a wonderful piece last week, sort of a graphic about what would happen if the court actually does overrule Roe, which it certainly looks more and more likely that they will. Yeah, I think that there is maybe not enough recognition of 
how major a change that would be in this country's culture and healthcare system. And that, you know, there are at least 22 states, you know, there are different organizations have different counts of how many states they will predict. But I think it's safe to say there are at least 22 states that are poised to ban all abortions almost immediately once the Supreme Court makes that possible. And what that means is that women in those states will have, you know, substantially diminished access to abortion. Uh, they, of course, can travel to states that have abortion clinics. Uh, there's, you know, obviously nothing preventing them from traveling, except that traveling is time consuming and costly. It involves having a car, uh, having time off from work, having daycare uh, in many of the states that they would go to that are kind of the states that have abortion that are neighboring the states that would ban it. Uh, they often have waiting periods, so they would have to go to another state, have a visit with a clinician, and then like wait around for a couple of days before they could actually have an abortion. And there's quite a lot of research from previous clinic closures that shows that the longer the distance, the more women just kind of can't get over the hurdle. We had a piece this week that we were just looking at the demographics of who gets abortions in America. And I really was just struck by how substantially this is a procedure that is being used by women in poverty. Um, the most recent statistics show that basically half of women who have abortions are below the poverty line. So they're really quite poor. And then another 25% are between 100% and 200% of the federal poverty level. So these are women who are living with very low incomes, uh, you know, potentially not with very stable jobs, typically have other children. The fact that they may now have to travel hundreds of miles in order to obtain abortion means that many of them just like simply will not. And Based on the Texas history, looks like we're looking at a decline in the number of abortions in the country of around 14% uh, just due to these state bans. And I think there are a lot of other factors that we don't really fully understand in terms of how the remaining clinics will be able to accommodate the patients who can travel. I was just going to say one of the things that we've seen in Texas is that clinics in the neighboring states in New Mexico and Oklahoma and Louisiana are completely overwhelmed by trying to, you know, there's there's not that many clinics left um, in, in several of these states. And now they're being sort of flooded by patients from Texas. And so people in those states are having, you know, their what, what was already limited access uh, impacted by what's going on in Texas. And obviously, if that were to expand to much of the South, which are the states that would likely ban abortion, um, it would get even harder. But meanwhile, one big difference in a world without Roe v. Wade in 2022 compared to 1973 is the existence of medication abortion via the abortion pill, Mifepristone. Um, and Alice, we're expecting news from the FDA on that today. Yes. What are what what are we expecting them to do? Groups on both sides of this that have been pushing the FDA expect the FDA to loosen their restrictions around medication abortion. So they already loosened some restrictions on it just for the pandemic. The argument being, you know, any risks from mail delivery of the pills is outweighed by the risks of making people physically come into a clinic and potentially catch COVID when when picking it up. And so but this is I mean, remind me people what some of the restrictions have been. It's sure. not like you can just go to the pharmacy and, you know, your doctor can call in a prescription. You can go pick it up. That's not how right. this works. Right. So for the last 20 years or so that the medication has been available, the FDA has said that patients have to physically be handed the pill by a medical provider, even though they can then go home and take it at home. Um, but still, the, the physical distribution had to be in person just until this year when, when it was relaxed a bit for the pandemic. And so now, 
triggered by an ACLU lawsuit that has been simmering for years, they're reevaluating those rules permanently because over the, the last few years, you know, there have been studies in other countries, but also now that the rules have been suspended during the pandemic, there's a lot of data showing that there's there's no real difference in safety, whether you pick it up from a pharmacy, get it delivered by mail or get physically handed it by a doctor. Um, there's there's really no difference in safety. And so um, groups like ACOG, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, has been pushing the FDA to update the rules and allow for this mail delivery. Now, of course, states who have been anticipating the FDA making the federal rules looser have rushed to implement their own restrictions. Um, and so now a lot of states do require the pills to be distributed in person by a doctor, no matter what the federal government ends up saying. And that's only expected to accelerate following the expected decision. So, so there will be an abortion pill. How available it will de be will depend, like everything else, on the state that you live in. There's also quite a, I don't want to call it robust, but I would say emerging black market for abortion pills. So I think an important thing to understand about these pills is that they are inexpensive to manufacture. They are relatively safe. They are not large in volume. They're easy to transport. And, you know, for many years, women have basically been, you know, Googling their way to Indian pharmacies that will mail you some pills from overseas. And there was a really interesting study done by a group called Gynuity a few years ago where they basically ordered pills from, all, from like 10 places that they could find on the Internet. And then they had a lab test them and they were all the real thing. Um, and there now are more organized groups. There's a group called Aid Access that's a, run by a doctor. It's based in Europe where basically women can have a telemedicine appointment with a European doctor who will give them advice. And then they have pills mailed to them, again, from Asia, from India, but it's like, you know, somewhat more vetted than the random thing you find on the internet. And they've been basically distributing these pills to thousands of American women. And uh, some of these pills can be obtained over the counter across the border in Mexico. I think that the FDA, of course, is trying to regulate these pills in a way that uh, ensures that they are authentic, that they are safe and effective, that they are accompanied by appropriate medical advice. And all of that is, I think, important. But there's also the potential for women who don't have access to that system because of state restrictions, because of financial barriers, because of other reasons, obtain pills on the black market. And I think that that is potentially what the future of illegal abortion in America looks like. Uh, you know, people talk a lot about like back alleys and coat hangers. And I don't want to pretend that there aren't desperate women who will do desperate things if they're unable to end pregnancies that they don't want to carry. But I do think that this is a different time than before Roe. And I think the availability of this technology and the ease with which it can be obtained uh, does sort of change the picture. And I think we'll see more of these kind of um, a colleague and I, in a piece that we wrote a few years ago, called them invisible abortions. These abortions that are not being tracked by anyone, that are not uh, occurring through the traditional medical system, uh, but are still happening. Self-managed self abortions is the... Is the That's the technical term. But I, I don't think like self-managed, because I think that the tel a telemedicine abortion where you get pills in the mail from a licit source is still self-managed. But I think, you know, the kind of black market self-managed abortion is its own thing. Right. Although, you know, this won't be an option for everybody for a lot of reasons, but in particular because the pills are only supposed to be used up to 10 weeks of pregnancy. So by the time somebody realizes they're pregnant, figures out how to obtain them, it could be too late. And so it, you know, in a post-row world, it will be an option for some people, but not for others. Of course, yeah. And you also have to have the savvy and the resources to figure out how to get them, to have the money or, you know, to pay for overseas things. I mean, there's, there will remain barriers, but I do think that this is an option that exists that didn't exist before 
row. And I think, you know, it, it will be part of the landscape and already is, frankly. That's why I asked the question. All right. Well, speaking of the FDA, uh, well, it took the Biden administration more than 10 months to nominate somebody to run the agency that regulates a quarter of all products in the United States. It apparently took the Senate Health Committee only a single two-hour hearing to make it pretty clear that Dr. Rob Califf will become the next FDA commissioner, despite some fairly high-profile opposition, including Senator Bernie Sanders. Califf, who ran the FDA for a year at the very end of the Obama administration, did take some heat at the hearing for his handling, particularly of the opioid crisis, which the FDA was indeed in the middle of. He managed to skirt questions about the impending abortion rule changes, pointing out correctly that he is not part of the process that's there now. But will his confirmation really be as easy as his hearing seemed? And if so, why did it take so long? It sort of seems like he's on track. It seems that, you know, despite some Democratic opposition from Senator Sanders on the panel and then more broadly within the caucus, once it gets to the floor, it seems like he's going to have enough Republican support to, one, get out of committee and then also make it to the floor and be confirmed back to leading the FDA. I think there's going to be, you know, probably some more pressure on him than there was. I think he's also coming into a pretty different FDA. And I think that, you know, despite particularly Republican support for his nomination, this is something that lawmakers are going to continue to press him on in office. You know, the FDA has changed a lot in terms of trying to get pressure to get faster approvals for COVID treatments and vaccinations. And I think this is something that, you know, a lot of... And testing. Yeah, of course. I think this is something that a lot of people are going to want to see broadened beyond the pandemic to sort of how can we speed up and try to continue using this to modernize the FDA, which, you know, is obviously known to be a little bit slow on a lot of things, can really take its time with decision making. So I think that will be something to continue to watch, assuming and when he gets confirmed. Anybody see any potential hidden landmines here. I was I was kind of taken. I watched the hearing by, you know, the, the really the most sort of emotional questioning came from some of the senators from some of the states that are hard that were hardest hit by the opioid epidemic, particularly Senator Maggie Hassan from New Hampshire. If you've sort of spent any time reading the books or watching the, the documentaries about the opioid crisis, you can see that the FDA really did kind of fall down on its responsibility to make sure that that these drugs were safe and and, and holds at least some culpability for for the opioid crisis. And uh, it'll be interesting to see, you know, how closely Congress tries to ride herd over the FDA going forward. Well, of course, this jumped out at me because it's what I've been focusing on. But even though he sort of waved away questions about the fate of the abortion pill regulation, it's notable that anti-abortion groups are calling for Congress to block his confirmation over his past support for enabling better access to the pills. So because Republican votes are needed to get him over the line because of opposition from some Democratic senators, the anti-abortion groups calling for them to block him could be meaningful. We'll see. And it's worth pointing out that nominees get blocked all the time over issues that have nothing to do with their particular abilities or background. It's like if somebody wants to make a point about the agency that the nominee is for, then then you end up with some of these confirmation fights. So I guess we will we will see what happens with Dr. Califf going forward. So elsewhere on Capitol Hill, I guess we have to give Congress a little credit for not shutting down the government, at least until 
next year sometime, nor breaching the debt ceiling, at least until after the midterms, and for getting the annual defense bill done. Still, it is beginning to look a lot like after Christmas for the Build Back Better reconciliation (laughs) bill. Apparently, the bill is not yet complete. Senator Joe Manchin is not yet on board. The parliamentarian has not yet finished going through it. But the longer this drags on, the harder it's going to be to actually do it, right? I mean, do we think they can do it in January? Or if they miss this December deadline, is it going to like drag into the spring? So Congress never does anything without a a sword hanging over its head. Um, So, you know, they they might try in January, but some folks think that because the short-term spending bill was punted, you know, that could prove that's to February. So that could prove the next, you know, tension point that actually forces some action on this. But again, it is that they just ran out of time before the end of the year, um, especially with the parliamentarians process, which is ongoing. But I think more important than just running out of time is that they they just haven't reached an agreement on some of the fundamentals. Um, and if you need every single vote of all 50 Democratic senators, the, you can have all the time in the world <laughs> and it still won't get done. It's hard. Yeah, it's really hard to see how they pick momentum back up. I feel like they've really lost any momentum that they had going into the month and after the House passed the bill. There's nothing right now that seems to be there to push anyone to make a policy change in terms of what they need to see to get the bill passed, i.e. specifically Joe Manchin doesn't seem like he's in particularly any sort of a hurry to try to get to an agreement. So, you know, I think the February CR deadline, you know, is probably the next most meaningful deadline. Um, And we'll see if, you know, after the holiday break, I think at this point, we're just sort of waiting for a formal announcement of when that's going to start, if they can get, you know, a deal on a package of nominees and get out of there before next week, take a couple weeks and be away from each other and then come back in January and see what happens. But a lot of the problem is that they're just out of time. There's no way that they can make all of these decisions. And I think in the last 48 hours, you've really seen Democrats kind of coming to terms with that. They did get an awful lot of stuff done in December, considering how much was on their list. It's December 16th, and all of the quote-unquote must-pass things are done, which I think is something that hasn't always happened in the last couple of Decembers. So, yeah. But it also, I think the fundamental problem is that they still don't agree. Of course, there are all of these procedural hurdles that they face. And I think, you know, every time we talk about the Senate, we get very focused on those. But I think at the end of the day, they just don't have the votes to pass the bill. And I think as soon as they can reach consensus about what they want to do on public policy, which, again, I, I agree with everyone else, has mostly to do with mollifying Joe Manchin, who seems concerned about the fiscal impacts of the bill, I think they can get it done. Uh, You know, momentum or lack of momentum, I think at this point really just comes down to whether or not he and the White House and congressional leadership can cut a deal that they can all live with. Well, I want to talk about insulin for a minute because I feel like it's the perfect example of why this bill is so hard. Um, The bill, at least as it passed the House, seeks to limit the amount people with insurance have to pay for insulin to no more than $35 a month, which is significantly less than many Americans pay now. But the provision wouldn't cover everyone. There are loopholes. It might not even make it through the process because it's not clear whether the parliamentarian will allow provisions that regulate private insurance in what's supposed to be a federal budget bill. Um, Margot, this is this is your extra credit this week. Why don't you talk about it? Oh, yeah. So uh, Jonathan Cohn at HuffPo had a really nice article on this called A Big Change Could Be Coming to the Price of Insulin. 
And I think he just does a nice job of laying out what the impacts of this policy change would be. I mean, I do think insulin is a really great example of a medicine that has enormous health benefits that does prevent people from having more serious complications from diabetes that are bad for their health and happiness, but also... Uh, it prevents them from dying. <laughs> yeah, it also, but it also causes all kinds of expensive hospitalizations and other things, you know, and yet... To me, it is kind of the stunning example of all of these weird incentives and uh, complications in our healthcare system that essentially, like, we know that this is medicine that people need to stay healthy and to prevent them from having expensive other problems. And yet we create all these financial barriers for people to take it. And so this policy is, of course, an effort to address that, to say, like, we're going to ask people to pay for their insulin, but only so much that it can't be infinite. And then just under the hood, there's all kinds of weird stuff, you know, every weird thing about our drug pricing system is evident in the case of insulin. You know, the drug companies have increased their prices enormously over time for medicines that are not particularly innovative. And there is also this very complicated and weird system of rebates and negotiations with pharmacy benefit managers, uh, perhaps more in insulin than in almost any other class of drugs, that leads there to be incentives for the prices to be higher or leads insurance companies to cover more expensive insulins and not less expensive insulins. So in, in some ways, this is kind of a, a blunt way of addressing it, but just saying like, okay, we're just like put a limit on how much we can ask people to pay for this uh, and a way of not resolving the underlying weirdness, which I think is quite hard and involves lots of changes that would be unpleasant for various important healthcare lobbies. One thing just about this fight before the parliamentarian that I think is interesting is that you know, the pharmaceutical industry in general is opposed to lots of parts of the drug regulation in this Build Back Better, but they're kind of fine with this, you know, like this actually doesn't hurt them. They think it's good for consumers. It uh, protects consumers from the high cost of drugs and makes them less angry at the pharmaceutical industries. And uh, the cost will mostly be borne by insurance companies and pharmacy benefit managers. So while I think there is a strong legal argument potentially to be made that this uh, does not follow the bird rule, I also think there's a little bit less interest group momentum behind challenging it. And so curious to see how vigorously it will be argued by Republicans. Well, well speaking of uh, drug prices, uh, as if to give the, the Senate yet another push, Democrats on the House Oversight Committee have issued a report based on a three-year investigation that finds, wait for it, drug prices are too high and that many drug price increases are unjustified. In response, Republicans on the committee issued their own report suggesting the drug industry middlemen, those so-called pharmacy benefit managers, aren't doing much to promote competition and are themselves themselves driving up prices. Of course, it is perfectly possible that both sides are right here, right? I mean, that's basically what you're just saying, Margo. Yeah, it's just a very weird, messed up, convoluted system that we have. Um, and there are lots of places where the weird incentives are leading to higher prices. Um, I don't think it has to be either or. Uh, it could be both. Uh, but I think each of these industries, of course, has a very strong incentive to point the finger at the other one. And so far, they've so far, it's been neither rather than both. <laughs> right. I do think that the report from the Oversight Committee, which is the culmination of a couple of years of investigations, this is not the first report that they've put out. They've had n numerous hearings. They've had some other reports along the way. I think there's not like blockbuster findings in uh, this investigation, but I think that they really do go through and demonstrate lots of things that the pharmaceutical industry does that make drugs more expensive that seem to be somewhat manipulative or unjustified, you know, ways that they use the patent system, ways that they increase prices uh, in order to hit various 
bonus targets for their executives. Uh, There's just a lot of good details in this report that help illustrate some of the shenanigans uh, in this industry that we have been aware of at a high level. I have files dating back 20 years on all of these shenanigans. (laughs) (laughs) And, And Democrats and Republicans promising to do something about it and not having done it yet. Well, uh, to move to some other special interests on Capitol Hill, uh, I think we talked about the pushback to the Biden administration's surprise billing uh, regulations the last time you were on, Margo. But now we have a lawsuit. The American Medical Association, the American Hospital Association are suing to block just the piece of the rules that affects how much they're paid when a bill is in dispute. It's this so-called arbitration system. I think the question that consumers want to know is, could this lawsuit delay the start of the protections that's supposed to begin January 1st? I do not think so based on my read of the lawsuit and also my conversations with the litigants. Uh, Their goal is not to prevent the law from going into effect. It's just to uh, delete some of the instructions that would be given to the arbitrator who helps. So, you know, when there's a dispute about how much an out-of-network provider should be paid. Uh, The way the law works is that there's some interim payment that is made that tides things over, and then the two parties go to arbitrator who is going to decide ultimately how they're going to settle. And the fight is about what instructions should be given to the arbitrator. And so what this lawsuit is asking is for a court to say, delete this section of the instructions for the arbitrator and let the arbitrator make a decision based on whatever other information and or their own gut instinct but I think it does. They are not looking to eliminate the consumer protections. They're not looking to eliminate this process itself. Um, so it is a little bit of a narrow request that they are making because they feel that the regulation is giving the arbitrator uh, too specific instructions about which factors to consider in reaching a price. Particularly that there is sort of a typical price, the median in-network price, that in the legislation is one of the considerations that the um, arbitrator is supposed to consider, and the providers feel the regulation tells them to consider it more heavily than other considerations in a way that may uh, bias them in that direction. So that's what the fight is about. It is about this relatively narrow thing. I think the stakes are high in terms of the fiscal impact of this legislation and its effect on insurance premiums, because if we have a system that rewards out-of-network providers with very high payments relative to what in-network doctors get. Uh, It creates incentives for them to stay out-of-network and to use this process more often. If we have a system that pays them very low amounts relative to what in-network doctors are getting, then it creates an incentive for insurers to drop doctors from their networks and use the system for that purpose. And so I think finding this balance uh, is important The more doctors get paid uh, for this kind of care, the higher insurance premiums are going to be. The less they get paid, the the more it will be reduced, but also the less these doctors are going to get paid. And, you know, some of them are looking at uh, pay cuts that are concerning to them. So this is, you know, this fight is very much about how much do insurers get, how much do doctors get to some degree, not about the core consumer protections that the law provides. Right. Although that's been the fight all along. Allison Mel, is there a chance that Congress is going to step back into this? I know there have been some some angry letters, but I can't, you know, it's this was so hard for Congress to resolve to get to this point. I'm wondering if they want to step back into this. I mean, they can barely get done the things that they've been attempting to get done all year. I don't I don't see, you know, tackling a, another 
thorny subject that they already spent, you know, years working on only to get the solution that's now under attack. So I would say outlook, outlook, not great for a revisitation from Congress. But you never know, because this is an issue with a lot of major players that spend a lot on lobbying and pressuring uh, Congress. So I think that the fight played out on the Hill for for a while, and it'll now play out in court. I would also just add, there are some, there are some important uh, chairmen and chairwomen on Capitol Hill who were involved in the crafting of this bill who really like the rule. So I don't think that they are going to be that inclined to try to bring it up, even if there is some interest from other members. Finally this week, and it's the thing that I guess ties everything together that we've been talking about, um, we got federal health spending numbers for 2020, and the numbers are complicated. The top line is that health spending was way up, as in 9.7% up, accounting for nearly 20% of the nation's GDP. But most of what we actually think of as health spending went up only slightly or even went down. Margot, what explains these numbers? They're very weird. Yeah, I think this is a report that is interesting, but we shouldn't think about the top lines in the way that we normally do. I think we often look to this national health expenditure report to tell us, like, is healthcare getting more expensive or getting less expensive? And I don't think this report really tells us that. So the reason why it go- has gone up so much is because there was a lot of emergency pandemic spending that was meant to stabilize our economies, to stabilize employment, to stabilize state and local governments. So uh, a couple of examples of this, as you may remember, there were these paycheck protection program loans that allowed employers to like pay their workers, even if their workers couldn't work. A lot of those went to doctors, dentists, and other kinds of healthcare providers. There was a similar program that provided forgivable loans to hospitals and I think nursing homes, other kinds of healthcare entities to help them stay afloat. And you know, the reason why they were getting all this money, of course, is because Uh, people were not going to the doctor because they were staying home and trying to avoid getting COVID. So we actually had reductions in 2020 in uh, the dollars being spent on healthcare by both insurers and individuals out of pocket. Uh, There was like relatively flat health insurance status despite the pandemic, but there was all these like special flows of money that were going out the door. There was also obviously a lot of direct spending on public health, and there was a lot of direct spending on Project Warp Speed on this vaccine development program uh, that helped us get these wonderful vaccines in such a short period of time. So all that money kind of counts as healthcare spending as far as the actuaries are concerned. It doesn't tell us very much about the trajectory of health spending once the pandemic is no longer with us. A lot of this money is expiring but some of it might stick around. I mean, I think this is a very small example, but uh, I know you guys talked about last week that Congress decided to reverse some scheduled cuts uh, in the Medicare program for uh, Medicare providers. And, you know, those cuts had been in place for almost a decade and they were reversed temporarily as part of this public health emergency. And instead of letting them expire, uh, Congress has, has just kind of pushed the ball down the road and said, no, we're going to continue uh, this increased funding for Medicare providers because they're in a tough place you know, you do that long enough and they come to rely on those additional payments. So I'm very curious what the actuaries are going to say in their forward-looking forecast. They always do two reports every year, one looking back, here's what we spent on healthcare. One looking forward, here's what we think the next decade is going to look like. That one, I think, is a couple of months away. But I'm curious how they think about the post-pandemic healthcare landscape and how much it's changed and how expensive it's going to be for all of us. I feel like 2020 is always going to have an asterisk by it when we sort of look at (laughs) historic spending. It's just like I looked, it's like, it did what? (laughs) 
And then I sort of read into it and I'm like, oh, it was it was basically all of the money. You're right. It was all of the federal money that went out the door to stabilize the economy and the health care system. There were hospitals that were that had to lay off big chunks of their staffs because nobody and if they were not having a COVID surge, then they didn't have any patients because they had stopped doing elective procedures. And as you pointed out, a lot of people were hunkering down and, and staying home. So 2020s. And also the really eye popping number to me is that, you know, we're we approached 20 percent of GDP spending on the healthcare system. Like that's a lot of our economy. You know, people are always watching that. But of course, in addition to the fact that the federal government pumped all this money directly into the healthcare industry on purpose, the GDP also contracted because there was a huge recession related to the COVID emergency. And so, you know, a sort of big share of a smaller number is going to look even bigger. That is not does not seem to be permanent. The economy has really rebounded in the last year and as the GDP is looking more normal again. Yeah, so we will we will see how that turns out. All right, that is as much news as we could get to this week. Now it is time for our extra credit segment where we each recommend a story we read this week we think you should read too. Don't worry if you miss it, we will post the list on the podcast page at khn.org and in our show notes on your phone or other mobile device. Uh, Margo, you've already done your smell. Why don't you go next? Sure. So my um, story this week, I wanted to highlight... Uh, a story about burnout amongst pharmacists as everyone is turning to pharmacies to get their booster shots as we head into this winter season and this latest COVID surge by two of my roll call colleagues, Emily and Ariel. I thought this story was really interesting, kind of looking at boosters. Everyone is rushing to pharmacies, trying to walk in, trying to get their booster shots. And pharmacists are really burnt out and they don't necessarily have the same support right now as they're dealing with the surge as they did earlier in the year when, you know, there was National Guard and volunteer to kind of help facilitate these. I think a lot of people went to mass sites to get their first vaccinations. And now they're like, okay, why can't I get an appointment for three weeks at my local pharmacy? I'm being told to, you know, get one immediately. I'm just going to go and show up. And it's also, you know, a real struggle, particularly for older people for whom, you know, getting a booster shot is most important if they haven't already gotten one and they're trying to go get it. They spoke to, you know, one person whose mother, you know, did a dry run, got all of her groceries in the house, and then she got there and there was a problem with her registration and they told her, try again and come back. And a lot of pharmacists are also deciding to, you know, maybe take a break from their job, quit their job because it's just, you know, too much, really long shifts, not enough staff to work with, and the burnout is real. So um, I know we've talked about this a lot with different workers in the healthcare field over the last couple of years, and this is sort of the latest group to really get this spotlight put on them. I feel like we're driving so many people to pharmacies for things other than picking up prescriptions um, without the pharmacies really having the workforce available to. And so, you know, every time I go to the pharmacy, I see frustrated pharmacists and frustrated patients. And at at some point, this is going to come to a head. Um, Alice. So I have a very depressing story uh, from the AP. It's called How a Kennedy Built an Anti-Vaccine Juggernaut Amid COVID-19. And it's about Robert F. Kennedy Jr. and his uh, anti-vax advocacy and just how much his involvement has completely allowed this anti-vaccine misinformation to skyrocket. He has been so successful at fundraising and using his family's name to uh, boost this very dangerous work. Um, Also, the websites, you know, he was involved in promoting got very little traffic before the pandemic, but they've just absolutely gone through the roof. And they're very effective at buying targeted ads on Facebook and other platforms, specifically targeting parents uh, and drumming up fear of vaccines, also targeting people of color. 
and it's so bad. And the pro-vaccine side, the science-based side is not as good at getting this information out. It's not doing this kind of targeted work in as effective a way. And the platforms, you know, YouTube, Facebook, et cetera, that this is spreading on are not doing a good enough job at stopping it and definitely something to pay attention to. And and lest people forget, the the anti-vax movement has long been bipartisan. There have been people sort of at the sort of left end and at the right end who uh, who who meet basically in the middle on this issue and have going back, you know, some you know twenty thirty years. So it it continues. Well, my story is from my KHN colleague Phil Gelwitz, and it's called West Virginia Senator Manchin takes the teeth out of Democrats' plan for seniors' dental care, and it's a prime example of how all politics is not always local. It's It seems that West Virginia leads the country in the percentage of adults over age 65 who have lost all their teeth uh, and has the third highest share of people age 65 and older of any state. Yet their senator, Joe Manchin, who we've talked about a lot today, is almost single handedly keeping a new dental benefit for Medicare out of the Build Back Better bill. Manchin says it will cost too much and will threaten Medicare's dwindling trust fund, except the dental benefit wouldn't have any impact at all on the trust fund. That's for hospital and nursing home care. The dental benefit would be part of Part B, which is funded by general revenues and patient premiums. Welcome to How Washington Works, or in this case, doesn't. So that is our show for this week. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcast. We'd appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us, too. Special thanks, as always, to our ace producer, Francis Ying. Also, as always, you can email us your comments or questions. Get those questions in for our Ask Us Anything episode, which will now be in early 2022. We are at what the health, all one word at KFF.org, or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. Alice? At Alice Holstein. Mel? At Mel McIntyre. Margo? At Sanger Cats. We will be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy.